Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the SAM Podcast. My name is Lee Vossen, and with me today is my co-host, Camille Bacucci. We are thrilled today to be joined by an individual whose story is one of conviction, integrity, and courage. Thank you so much, Nathan Wiley, for joining us today. So happy to have you. Yes, thank you very much for the work you're doing and for having me for this conversation. Absolutely. So I'm going to throw it to Camille to do a bit of a bio, and then we're going to just jump into the interview. Yeah, so... Um... I to save some some time here. I'll just give a little a brief bio, and then we can hop right into it. So in in 2021, um, Nathan Wiley was invited to Western University Center for the Study of Theory and Criticism, P, the PhD program, um, and he recently released a statement announcing his decision to withdraw from the program, and um, ended up with or losing seventy thousand dollars in scholarship funds. Um, you do have a, an incredibly interesting story and, uh, we're going to get, we're definitely going to get more into that, uh, both past and future plans. Um, but I guess just to, just to begin, what led you to drop out of Western and, and write this letter? Well, I tell some of my friends and colleagues that there are really two motivating factors, the small stuff which was accumulating. And that's a lot of the same things that all students experience, especially in grad programs, um, bureaucracy, for example. But the big reasons are, of course, the mandates and the total situation in which I came to understand what the mandates uh, mean. And just the, my conscious driving me to, uh, to recognize that we were living in a sort of big lie. Uh, well, it was, it was really my research that led me to, to that realization, but there's a certain intuition involved, a certain uh, element of conscious involved, and uh, <clears throat> that uh, is also present in any kind of um, research along the lines of the type of research that I do. And so I, knew that I was at Western probably temporarily. I would have liked to have stayed the full four years and to have uh, received the credential I went there to, to get. Um, but something told me that that might not happen. And that's fine. I'm a bit of a nomad. And uh, <laughs> I'm used to going from even one program to another, one place to another. Uh, it was, it was almost surreal though, being at Western uh, and finally being in a situation the first time in my life where I was receiving scholarship money to do what I love most, which is simply to study and to learn. And um, it was almost too good to be true. And given the circumstances, it did in a way turn out to be too good to be true. Um, I can't uh, abide the uh, coercion involved with the mandates, the ambushing of the students, the terrorizing tactics of arrest of some of our colleagues you've interviewed, for example, and just perhaps more than anything, the blatant irrationality of it all, which is not what I came to university to a higher education program uh, to become involved in. Yeah. No, I could I couldn't agree more. I mean, you you see how at this point also, I mean, when they first started, sure they could they could obviously hide behind the 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 science or whatever. But at this point, um, I think all of us here at least find it uh, to say the least unethical um, the way they're going about it. And 
and maybe down the line we'll see that that uh that it was illegal but i mean at this point there's there's no moral code there's no ethical code it's uh it it really is it really is um uh like the, like the administrations of, of western and my school as well laurier it's it's uh it's a it's a tyrannical almost uh group at the top there that that doesn't really care about the the students voices or the students themselves i guess to to kick as many as they did out um so yeah i, I couldn't agree more and, and I, I applaud you for standing by your own um yeah. your own ethical code and and refusing to to support an institution that that um that was going about about uh edu- educating their students uh with these practices right i'd be interested too to know uh I saw in your your bio that you sent us a brief description that you did speak to other people on campus and your your peers about these issues and you tried to delve into conversation with them um, and debate these topics. What sort of conversations were you having? What was the response you were receiving from those individuals? Well, there's the conversations both in class and outside of class. And I invested quite a bit of... Um, time with my friends outside of class, because honestly, oftentimes in in these institutions, the most learning takes place outside of the classrooms, especially under current circumstances. While my class is being at the theory center is an interdisciplinary program. And so they, they do cover a lot of interesting literature and topics. For example, I had a class in biopolitics and the unconscious, and we read Thomas Malthus, Charles Darwin and other thinkers. And really it was a great opportunity for me to to delve into sort of the genealogy of what we're experiencing now in terms of eugenics. Um, So there are opportunities in class to raise questions. And I did so very tactfully and very uh, conscientiously. And I, always walked into classroom with the intention of sort of poking holes in the narrative, the authorized narrative. And I was able to do that. Now the professor always would recoil into a um, university position, Um, not a direct shutdown of dialogue, but when there's only one person in the room in a seminar room with the authority to determine the future of everyone else in that room, and that person takes a strong stance in favor of the authorized narrative, it is a way of de facto shutting down at least a certain amount of dialogue that can take place. And so really it's just cultivation of friendships. Um, And that's not for any other reason than the joy of being friends with brilliant people. And my friends at the Theory Center are exactly that. And I learned a lot from them. And you you get together, you hang out, you get to know one another, you share your perspectives. And I did that. In terms of the response, well, you know, you feel it out here and there and you get different uh, reactions. And over time, um, you know, I've been able to say more and more as I've come to learn more and more and to pass on some of the information that I have, that I've been digging up. Uh, I'm an avid researcher. I have an eight foot conference table to my left, a six foot conference table in front of me. They're all piled up with papers. I print everything. I'm, I'm a compiler and organizer. And uh, like I said, an avid researcher. So I had friends over to my place. We hung out uh, at their places sometimes and, you know, talked, talked, uh, talk shop. And these topics come up. And now 
to maybe be a little bit more direct in how I answer, there's a hesitation to enter into these topics. They're taboo. And so being who I am, I sort of just say what's on my mind a lot of the time. And I don't, I don't really care that much if a topic's taboo. Um, so, so you would think I that's what academic academics and inquiring minds would do. Like they would tackle those taboo topics, right? And that's why it surprises me that a lot of teachers and professors shied away and backed away from that. But sorry, I'll and, let you and face and face backlash for it too, right? And face certainly. And people are worried about that backlash because yeah. it's real, as you both know full well. <laughs> And um, I have the advantage too of being older. I'm 37 years old. So I've developed um, my, in my intellectual life, uh, you know, a decade, a decade and a half more than some of my colleagues and friends. And so, um, and so I have that indispensable experience and also, you know, a, a mature, a little bit of a maturity in life to be able to, um, to take some stronger positions in tough circumstances. And so I sympathize with the difficulty of younger students. I'm really impressed with uh, younger students like yourselves um, for, for the work, for what you've done in terms of standing up. But I'll tell you right off the bat at orientation, I was hearing things from, uh, from some colleagues that were, uh, that were pretty, they were uh, loudly declaring their antipathy towards the anti-vaxxers. And it's just a matter of raising a question. Well, I know, for example, I think I said something along the lines of, well, I know uh, some of the bad reasons out there and I know some of the good reasons. And then that raises curiosity. Well, what do you mean good reasons? And then on and on like that, just raising questions. And this one particular individual at the end of that year, fast forward to the after, year party happened to say to me, um, you know, in shop terms, uh, that the that that there's a position that he arrived at that's more aligned with that of the anti-vaxxers. And one thing he said really uh, stuck out to me, it had to do with uh, a friend, I think he was intellectually persuaded, but it wasn't simply intellectual persuasion through some of the authors that he was reading and things he was hearing, you know, maybe from myself in class, I don't know. But I think a big part of it was he has had a friend who, um, who was against the mandates, against the so-called vaccines. And that friend was a very kind friend, a very nice person. I think that person happened to be a Christian. And it turns out that a lot of people who are in the resistance movements do profess a faith of some kind or another. And that goes an awfully long way, that kindness, that patience. And so I put those kinds of um, practices and, and, and mentalities into, into practice in my conversations with, with those friends and understand that we've all been assaulted psychologically with a terror campaign and that everyone's in a different place and everyone's going to come to a realization, hopefully at one point in time or another, it's just a matter of being there with them, being there for them and being their friend and speaking your mind and telling them what you think. Yeah, sure. I, it just quickly, I think it's interesting that you're saying uh, that one friend sort of woke up to this because they had, or the one individual you're speaking to rather, 
woke up to this because they had a friend who was kind, who was in the anti-mandate movement. What I've noticed that the media has very successfully done is dehumanize uh, the anti-vaxxers and the anti-mandate people. A lot of the anti-vaxxers aren't really anti-vaxxers. They've had multiple vaccines. Uh, they've, you know, throughout their life or have even had the COVID vaccine and then been um, injured in some way, shape or form and chose not to have another one. Uh, but yeah, it ends up being quite telling. A lot of these people don't know uh, any anti-mandate people because either they haven't felt comfortable to speak out because of the vitriol that they've been experiencing. Um, and it just takes talking and being open and having these conversations uh, to maybe change some minds, but yeah. Uh, so so you were saying you're, the reaction to, um, what what reactions did you have from certain academics? Like, did anyone shut you down in conversation at all or say they, they refused to have that conversation with you? I'll speak to that, but I also wanted to make one point to what you said about the demonization of the so-called anti-vaxxers. It's a very real thing. And the one thing that I want to say about that is how crucial it is that we not recoil into our own defensive position and do the same thing to others. And certainly if you look around the movement and I have my ear close to the ground, you know, I have 15 tabs open, uh, 15 different browsers open with full tabs. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always following uh, what's going on in, in the movement. And there's, that's, that's a real tendency that some people have taken out of, out of I think, fear. Um, and we can't let the fear get the best of us. So in terms of the professor's responses, well, you know, some, it, it depends on the, I've never, I've always taken a tactful approach, um, but an honest one at the same time. And I had one paper in particular, I can tell a story about where I, it was important to me to at some point be able to articulate, I really would have liked to have written something like a position paper, but come up with some kind of a framework to provide an analysis of the situation without necessarily naming it as such, but making it clear that this is what I'm talking about. Namely, the, uh, the demonization of the unvaxxed, the bifurcation that takes place when, whenever that demonization process kicks in, and the apartheid process that we're witnessing on our campus and in our societies. And so I wrote that paper and uh, for one class this winter term, and I, I got a high mark and pretty generic comments in response, the professor wrote a, what you could consider a, uh, well, a paper of a, from a different perspective, uh, the title of the paper, and this, this was a draft paper. He asked me not to share the paper with anyone because it's a draft paper. I don't think that prevents me from saying what the title is. The title is Biocommunism. And I read that paper over the summer and I had some suggestions since he asked me for my comments. And included in my suggestions were, you know, recommended reading, in particular when he dismisses in one short paragraph um, uh, um, the position of Agamben, who is, you know, sort of the big name in the psychoanalytic school, who came out against, uh, the, you know, with the strong statements with respect to the pandemic very early on, and he was anathema for it, and he was dismissed in that paragraph. I simply suggested that. The paper would be stronger if a, if there was a, a refutation offered instead of just simply dismissal. And I provided some recommended reading 
since Agamben is really just one figure and there are a number of figures in our tradition who have uh, written books and articles. And I never got a response. Uh, so here I wrote a paper and incidentally, here's the other part of the story. That paper, I published that paper. I published it without comment from the professor because it took the professor so long to get it back to me. I don't know why, but it did. And I published it without comment. Meanwhile, I receive paper from the professor, provide feedback and don't receive any response whatsoever. And yet I'm the one paying tuition. Yeah, no, it's crazy. I, I was actually, I was, I was going through it for anyone that's, that's listening that wants to uh, check out Nathan's work um, on, on academia.edu. I, uh, I read through your critique of the necro-political economy of the Internet of Things. And uh, to say the least, it was, it, was, uh, it was tough reading it, obviously. It was, uh, I, think, I think, a little bit too, too difficult for me. Um, but I, I looked into the, the book, The Anti-Epidus, and I, I kind of I wanted to know what your thoughts were on that, um, I guess, related, related or regarding the, the criticism or I guess the, the, the characterization of capitalism that, that the author provides or the authors provide in, in that book. Because it's, 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 it's super interesting, right? It's uh, a little bit, like I said, a little bit too much for me, but, but uh, I'm, I'm curious what you think, if you could provide a little background for, for the, the listeners, too. Yes, anti Oedipus by Deleuze and Guattari. Uh, Deleuze is one of one of the uh, one of the philosophers from the 20th century who uh, I've really taken an interest in over the years. And his co-author his co-authored books with Guattari are fascinating, including anti Oedipus and the 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 next volume in that uh, be belonging to a two part series, Thousand Plateaus. Anti Oedipus is a critique of psychoanalysis. Uh, one of the points that stands out to me in that book is that they define the unconscious as a battlefield and not a scene from bourgeois theater where bourgeois theater pretty much is operating with, you know, the typical mommy, daddy, me triad, um, which is what psychoanalytic uh, theory in Freud, for example, is working with. And this opens up the scope of the critique and opens up the domain of the unconscious to introduce all kinds of other players involved. They don't cite Gustave Le Bon, but Gustave Le Bon's 1895 treatise, Crowd Psychology, A Study of the Popular Mind is very much present in that book. And Gustave Le Bon is interested in the manip and crowd manipulation. And he sees the coming era as an era of crowds, frightens him, he's got an aristocratic disposition. He doesn't wanna be ruled by the mob. And so he comes up with uh, very persuasive theories for the way crowds operate and how to manipulate crowds. He, for example, defines crowds as being susceptible, uh, irritable, intolerant, et cetera. Sound familiar? Um, <laughs> I was just gonna say, it sounds very familiar. <laughs> so, I mean, this literature fascinated me. Now, Deleuze and Guattari take up some Labanian themes and I take them up as well. There, I mean, there are aspects of Deleuze and Guattari's critique that I don't follow and things that are, are going on there that I don't necessarily uh, want to go along with. And so I merged their critique with Achille Mbembe's uh, concept of necropolitics in order to sort of recuperate Deleuze and Guattari's thesis into 
a um, in, into a, a critique that was more along the lines of the way I think, namely a decolonial critique that we get from Mbembe. Now, I'm sorry, I'm, uh, I'm lapsing into um, uh, technical terms without providing definitions. Uh, it's been a, little, been a while since I looked at that paper. Don't worry about it. But um, one, one of the things I took up in that paper was their diagram of uh, paranoiac, fascizing, unconscious social tendencies versus what they call schizo-revolutionary tendency uh, alternatives. And I thought that their description, the paranoiac, fascizing tendencies, fit some of what I was seeing over the last two years in terms of the fear-driven response that was purposefully um, that was purposely triggered, panic was triggered in order to get that response, in order to make crowds more manageable and manipulable. And, uh, and so I was looking at uh, using their theories to, to sort of uh, work through some of what I was seeing. So, so I guess the, the pandemic kind of gave you inspiration for, for this, uh, this critique because it was, it was a, it's a June 2022, correct? Yeah, I guess I wrote the paper in May and then uh, and then published it in June. Okay. So I'm always so I'm always looking to my inspiration always comes from experiences and, and what's going on now, more or less. Yeah, that's very relevant. <laughs> um I don't know if you had a question, but I, I guess I, I, I'll I'll i I'll steal your, <laughs> your your spot here, Lee. Um no speaking of speaking of influences, um I see that you have a very you you uh you're well versed I guess you're you have a multicultural uh view on the or experience of the world. Um I see that um you were homeschooled uh during your childhood. Um you went to school in Geneva. Um if I'm if I'm correct there, studied philosophy in Geneva. Um you had you 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 received training in biblical studies and biblical Hebrew. Um, you traveled to East Asia, taught in uh, in schools there, um, and then back in the U.S. So I guess you've you've kind of been all over the world. So I want I, I was personally curious too about um, I guess what what growing up was kind of like, um, and if you think you or where you drew some of the inspirations uh, for your I guess your your current views on the world. Um, where 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 do you did you draw inspiration uh, from for those? Thank you for that question. Yes, Geneva College in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. <laughs> okay. where I got my, my BA. I, I did live in Europe. I did live in Slovenia. That was later on. Okay. Uh, but I studied uh, my undergrad first at community college because I was homeschooled. I was able to, in my senior year of high school, I was able to go on to community college, take credits there and have it do double duty for me. When and you were then, 17, yeah? Something like that. I think 17. Yeah, that yeah that's about right. That's crazy. <laughs> I was homeschooled from second grade onward. It's very independent. I'm a very independent person. I'm an, I'm an outsider, probably in large part because I was homeschooled uh, and very independent, independent in my learning. Uh, now, my mother was the organizer of the homeschool and she would prepare, you know, daily activities for my brothers and I. I have two older brothers. 
but uh, over a period of time, we just sort of took our own initiative and pursued our own interests. We, of course, had to fulfill. There are expectations and criteria that you have to fulfill to get a diploma. Mm-hmm. You are evaluated and you do have to take achievement tests and so on. So I, I, I had to, you know, make sure I woke up early in the morning at, uh, to do mathematics. Uh, otherwise, if I saved it till three in the afternoon, I wouldn't be able to focus at all. Yeah. I took more to writing and uh, and just loved to, to write and to create. And so and then I went to community college where I was introduced to philosophy and that captured my imagination. And so I studied philosophy at Geneva College. And to this day, I'm not sure I should contact the college to see if I also have a, a, a degree in biblical studies because I think I might have enough credits for that. Yeah. And I studied biblical Hebrew. So in terms of my influences, Yes, I was um, raised in the Judeo-Christian tradition, and you know, when you're given a book like the Bible to learn as a kid, and you have sort of an intellectual bent, there's a there's a lot of uh, room for 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 you to to learn, um, including learning. I didn't learn Greek, but I learned Hebrew, and I love textual analysis. I love comparative literature. I love looking at ancient Near Eastern literature in relation to the Hebrew Bible. And studying transmission traditions and that kind of analysis is useful in philosophy too um so those that definitely informs who i am in 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 major ways and i I have also lived in uh japan and south korea and while i was there i underwent some you know existential experiences reading buddhist uh philosophy and so i can I, i don't confess any faith today. I consider myself a member of the unaffiliated faithful, and I le- I like working with people in a variety of faith communities, but I sort of follow my own path and coming back to that uh, high degree of independence that characterizes me. Can't, can't escape it. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I was actually homeschooled myself. It was just one year. Um, our basement ended up flooding, so we had to go back to school, but I found I learned way more in that one year. Uh, I I think we learned two years of schooling in one year. And I was way ahead of uh, my class when I went back to school because the teacher, which was my mom, could be focused on what I was learning and what she saw. I was catching on to a concept. We were able to move on to the next thing. Um, And obviously, too, she cared about our progress, right? Maybe more so than obviously the teachers care, but they have a whole class to focus on. Um, I definitely th- think uh, homeschooling is a really good option if pe- that's something people want to consider. Um, but I'd be interested as well to hear about your overall experience with the pandemic, um, you know, kind of starting back in 2020. And, and when you did catch on to, hey, maybe this isn't what they're telling us it is. And when you took issue maybe with the vaccine itself and, and had questions there, you probably were questioning right from the beginning. But if you wouldn't mind walking us through that. There were questions right from the beginning, but I was very much taken off guard in the winter of 2020. I was, uh, I don't know, coming up on a full year into falling in love with the woman I would go on to marry. And so living in a studio apartment, focusing on graduate studies and um, and just and being with the love of my life was uh, was where I was at playing basketball two, three hours two, three times a week, two, three hours uh, an evening. 
and, uh, and you know, just trying to get a degree and study and learn. So I was really kind of taken off guard by what happened. And um, my wife is immunocompromised and has three comorbidities with respect to the disease that we were told was, uh, you know, going to kill in numbers that turned out to be uh, overestimated by Neil Ferguson at Imperial College London. So I wouldn't have been able to live with my, yeah, I, was, I, was, I was afraid, it worked. I was afraid, <laughs> in short. And um, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on because I do have a very critical disposition and I did see Bill Gates popping up everywhere. And I was well aware that Bill Gates is a monopolist and he's not an, a good actor, right? I mean, there's one photo of him where someone zoomed in on one of the texts. Uh, he has a stack of books, and one of it, and one of the books is titled "How to Lie with Statistics." So, really? <laughs> I've seen that. Yeah, it's ridiculous. There, there were there were lots of there were little questions. Um, for example, where are the biohazard waste baskets for the masks? Why are there, when I took uh, my wife to, to get her jab, why were there armed and fatigued military personnel at the Wisconsin Center in downtown Milwaukee for that? And on and on and on, little things. And I had friends who had their eyebrows raised as well. But I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't have uh, any information at that time. I was, again, I was focused on my studies. I was, you know, clammed up in a studio apartment and, you know, sort of dealing with that, not being able to get out, play basketball, do the things I love, just trying to, just trying to get through the semester. And I went for a Moderna jab because I, if I had contracted COVID-19 and passed it to my partner and something had happened, I wouldn't have been able to live with myself. So I thought, this is really what I'm going to have to do, even though I really wasn't comfortable with it, especially when I went to get the second one. I almost walked out because I knew this something's not right here. And I had a severe adverse reaction. But the cognitive dissonance was so strong that I sort of just kind of shrugged it off. I didn't make a big deal out of it. I had finals I had to get done. But I lost the feeling in the left side of my face. To this day, it's still kind of numb, and it goes all the way down through my left arm. That's where I received the injection. I have heart trouble that I never had before, especially if I exercise intensively. And so that experience of a severe adverse reaction contributed to me starting to more seriously look into, okay, what is going on now, especially um, since I was, yeah, and I was also, uh, gaining access to some information. Whitney Webb, who you may have heard of, and if you haven't, I would suggest looking into her investigative journalism into, for example, Operation Warp Speed. She's also written two volumes recently on Jeffrey Epstein. Whitney Webb's investigative journalism was really helpful to me from the beginning. I think she was really helpful to a lot of different people. But one thing led to the next. Once I start getting research, uh, researching on a topic, it's impossible to slow me down or stop me. This one has captured my attention and I've not let go of it ever since. Wow, that's that's incredible. Yeah, and yeah. so many people would have been put in the situation you were in where they were unsure and they didn't feel comfortable with it. 
but because there's that element of fear in place and you know you have loved ones around you whether it be your your partner or your grandparents or parents whatever it is you would do what you have to do to protect them and I have a lot of friends too who said I didn't even look into it I was told this is how I protect my loved ones so I did it and yeah, yeah it's I just think it is so criminal and and disgusting what what has taken plot uh place over the past few years the uh the emotional blackmail right it's um I'm I'm sure it's not unprecedented, but using the people that we love against us, and I know there's certain parallels to the SARS. This what what happened with SARS uh, back when I guess I was I was a baby in the early 2000s. Um, uh, like I've spoken to my parents about it, and and what my dad basically says is, um, yeah, like w- once they told us that our babies or our kids, our children, like the our our everything we're at risk of dying from this thing. It was, it was no joke. Like my parents, like, I think at the time, like self quarantine, they didn't have to be told to quarantine or anything. They, and, and that's the thing, right? It's when you use the people that, that, that we, that we love against us, it's, those are the people we'd do anything for. Right. And, and, uh, and, and there's, I'm sure I want to say millions, but probably billions that are, that are in the exact same situation as you, that, that uh, were coerced in in one way or another, and and emotionally blackmailed. You, you know what I mean. So uh, and never it's, it's informed horrible. either, and uh, or, or misinformed, and, and both. Yeah, uninformed, yeah. misinformed, <laughs> lied to, uh, lied to. Yeah, yeah. So think- through all of your research, have you come up with a theory as to why this is happening? Why they're doing this and and pushing vaccines that. You know, there's data out now that they're clearly neither safe or effective, um, and yet they continue to spread spread this information. They they censor anyone you know with dissenting views. You know, the Malones and McCulloughs and Ryan Coles and and whatnot. Um, what theory do you have as to as to what's happening? And just to, just to add to that question, um, and also, what are your thoughts uh, on the the, the the uh, the changing narrative throughout this whole pandemic on on what they were telling us to uh, to do as well like on on top of why did why do you think they did this like what what are your thoughts on on how they were unable to stick to one story the entire time and people kept buying into it well you know a big lie is difficult to um, to maintain very long and so you have to have built into that lots of backtracking and lots of maneuvering and massaging and uh, lots of confusion, if you can generate a, a lot of confusion, saturate people with information, misinformation, changed information, eventually people are put into a state of apathy and no longer caring and feel like it's impossible to know. Uh, I think that's part of it. In terms of like an overall idea about what's going on here, I take a geopolitical look, uh, uh, perspective, coupled with a perspective on what are emerging industries right now. Um, Those two in particular. Uh, And I believe that the the pandemic is, uh, you know, it's a plandemic, as some people put it. It was planned. You can look at Paul Shire's video on this on YouTube. can't, the title eludes my mind. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. also covers all the different exercises uh, on pandemic preparedness. 
that were uh, that various intelligence agencies, naming the CIA and, and other transnational state apparatuses like the, the CDC and the WHO were involved in. Uh, you can look at a book called Emerging Viruses by Leonard Horowitz that shows some of the previous attempts at pulling off what was pulled off with coronavirus. All of it is well-documented. Whitney Webb, who I mentioned, also documents this well, and many, many others have um, established that this was a planned operation in order, in my view, to initiate a rapid transition into an age of biodigital convergence. Now, that last term I take from a Canadian government publication, you can find it on the government's website that uh, I can't remember the exact title of the document, but it's about biodigital convergence. I believe the mRNA platform and the also the, the um, getting people used to being on vaccine schedules where vaccines could contain undeclared substances. And I even looked into whether or not vaccines have contained undeclared substances prior to 2020. They have. There are studies out there. Um, and in biomaterial sciences and emerging industries, they're built around a triple IT nanobiotech revolution, which is discussed also by militaries in Germany and the United States. I have papers on this. It's widely discussed. It's publicly available. It's also in the literature published by the W Economic Forum on, for example, transhumanism. So I believe this is uh, to initiate a rapid transition into an age of biodigital convergence as a global project in the, in the West that is vying with other global projects right now as we experience the collapse of capitalism and the need to uh, and the need to um, and the need to come up with a solution to that inevitable collapse. So the union collapsed in 1991, and it was only a matter of time until also capitalism in the West collapsed. And it's you can think of it as collapse. Um, this is how some analysts like to talk about it. Sometimes. I think it's more accurate to describe it as a sort of uh, metastasization or a transformation of capital. You have the W economic, the World Economic Forum talking about stakeholder capitalism. It's a different model of capitalism, but they're still using that name. And so uh, it's a, an authoritarian kind of neo-feudal um, model that is based off of the Chinese model, the Chinese introduced markets into their economy in the 1970s. And they have a strong state and big business that collaborate in it to, um, to uh, censor the population and to uh, jumpstart different experimentations with these kinds of emerging technologies. The West has to be able to compete with that. Now, there are factions in China, too, that collaborate with the West. It's a complicated geopolitical picture. There are different clans with different interests, sometimes cooperating, sometimes competing. But that's the big picture for me of what we're looking at. Um, I was going to say co collapse. I think you're being nice. I think it's more of a, a destruction, right? Control um, demolition. Yes, yes. I, as far as I'm concerned, capitalism is uh, can be defined as Adam Smith put it, a, a, a truly free market. And 
that's not to say an, an anarchical system, but but uh, a free market where where I guess you could say the 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 buyers and the sellers' desires are accurately represented, where there's price discovery, where uh, where there isn't this 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 inflation that's being for, forced upon us by by the central banks across the world, right? By, by these supranational uh, interlocking directorates, you can call them, um, with these transnational state apparatuses. And um, and central banks, transnational, yeah. multinational corporations, and central banks. Yeah, I, the way I see it is, is there set with this whole globalist structure that they're trying to create? It's uh, it's almost like they're they're trying to turn North America into a this 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 neoliberal uh, tax farm for for the rest of the world, right? Where 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 money is no longer, I guess, necessary. It's more. It's all about ownership at that point, but and and that's that's another thing that I think I think we're we're looking at, but without <laughs> without getting too off topic. I yeah, guess. capitalism <laughs> tends towards monopolies, right? And we see we're seeing major monopolies, and to the point where neo the neoliberal faction would like to monopolize and privatize the whole planet. They yeah. like to monopolize and privatize the human genome, and. You have to have checks and balances in place if you're going to run a, a free market system or a capitalist system, and they have to be strong, strong enough to to prevent these the dismantling of the state checks and balances. We unfortunately haven't didn't do that. The 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 as they're sometimes referred to, the globalists are winning, and um, they're uh, accruing all the wealth, they're accruing all the power, and they're now applying it to realize their projects that are rooted in whatever their ideology is. And while they're pretty vocal about what their ideology is, uh, these days, uh, well, it's a transhumanist ideology, which is really just a re-articulation of the eugenicist projects that we saw arise at the end of the, um, uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like they're they're pretty open about it too. People just aren't listening, or yeah. or don't care, or don't care enough, right? When you look into it, everything is posted online, or they they talk about it. They're very open, which that's almost to me what has been something that's been very shocking. When I try to have conversations with other people who are very afraid, what's happening with you know COVID. And I think if you're so afraid, why don't you do research? If I I never really felt afraid of it for some reason, I, I felt like something was up and it, it seemed odd. The two weeks even to slow the curve didn't make sense to me. A lot of this stuff didn't make sense to me. So I questioned it from the beginning, but um, and that sense of fear wasn't in place. But um, I've never understood why people haven't just taken the time to look into it because there's a lot of information available. Um that might open their eyes. Um, but what what would you think, considering all this, what do you foresee, you know, 2030 looking like for, for Canadians? I think that a balkanization is underway right now. And so the uh, it's really hard to, to predict anything, but Balkanization, meaning that the United States of America and the, let's say, United Provinces of Canada will no longer be united. Um, that's one uh, possibility. I mean, people might abscond from places like Ontario and British Columbia to places like Alberta, or they might stay strong and fight where they're at. 
and push back these forces to pre to prevent um, balkanization in the north uh, in North America. But I think balkanization is uh, a high stands a high chance of happening, and you know balkanization could also entail then civil war. So for me, at least, I see that as, do you see that as a, as a positive or a negative from where we're at right now with the direction of the country? Because um, if, and for me, I understand it kind of like splitting up the country into kind of like what the Soviet Union did um, or what, what Russia did, I guess. Um, but how, uh, I guess if you go to a place like Alberta, right, or I guess you, central Canada, wouldn't be it wouldn't be too bad obviously then like you said you'd have to leave your home right so so would that be a positive or just i guess a realistic uh outlook on on how you see canada or the direction canada is heading towards i really don't know i really don't know. <laughs> um it's hard to say um i mean people might it's hard to say. I, I don't have an answer to that question. Okay. Yeah. I don't, as I was thinking about it, I don't think I could answer that. I mean, I'll, I left, I, I left Ontario to come somewhere where I feel more comfortable and that's been a positive thing. I can answer yeah. it from a personal point of view, but in terms of tracking like uh, geopolitical movements and, and what balkanization could entail, uh, I really don't know. I'm, I'm in the dark. So what are your plans going forward long-term in the near future? Um, I know that you were compiling a dossier on mRNA vaccine constituents. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and yeah, just what you're working on? This, uh, this dossier, I, I, I called it that sort of ton in cheek because a friend of mine uh, in conversation, I had mentioned some things about patents, for example, in relation to vaccine contents and central bank digital currency and uh, another another things i was sort of putting putting a variety of uh, ideas out there and i mentioned that i had you know some interesting material that i could share and the friend did request that i share it and rather than just dump pdfs in in, in the email i decided to sit down and actually put it into some kind of presentable form with a little bit of comments, very information forward with light comments. And I called it a dossier. And uh, I ended up sitting down with it a second time and sort of working it a little bit more. And I thought, okay, maybe I have a little bit of a bigger project. Maybe I'll sit down a third time and, and make it more of a public, publicly shareable document. And this is just me. I mentioned that I'm an avid researcher and I print things, I make files. This is just me sitting down and trying to consolidate some of that information and, and share it. I'd like, to, I'd like to do that with a variety of files. Vaccine contents is, is one file that I've, that I've now done that with and would like to refine that. Um, but I have, I'm sitting on a lot of that kind of information. And <clears throat> what I would like to do is to organize it and, um, and share it, you know, something that comes to mind is in lieu of writing a, a dissertation, maybe writing a book. Um, be awesome. I, I don't quite have an angle just yet, but it'll come. Oh, that would be incredible. We'd definitely yeah. pick that up. Um, 
yeah that would be i mean just from reading your stuff like you're you're obviously an incredible writer like you could you could put stuff on or put words on paper um seemingly effortless effortlessly so i would i would uh i would need a signed copy when when it comes <laughs> out um and yeah um i had a question about the independent scholarship fund um can you tell us a little bit about that and um and i guess what what that would entail for over the next uh, over the next few years this is something i've never really done before but um the decision to leave western uh has been financially devastating <laughs> um because it involved also a move and transition into uh, finding work. And that whole process has been held up. Uh, my bread and butter has always been teaching. I've taught in East Asia, in Central Europe, US, spent a number of years in the Philadelphia school system teaching junior high school, high school, elementary school. And so I'm always eligible to do that. And I even have some job offers here as a substitute teacher doing some part-time work, but for whatever reason, my FBI fingerprints uh, verifying that I don't have a criminal record are not coming through. And so I am stuck right wow. now without, without work. And um, I, the idea occurred to my wife and I to maybe see if we couldn't get some kind of uh, support by creating an independent scholarship fund since um, my decision to leave Western entails uh, is something that's been uh, being applauded and I, I'm grateful for that. And that's really all that I need. But given that people support those types of actions, maybe uh, maybe I thought people would be willing to support uh, that decision financially. And honestly, I don't mind uh, putting in some part-time work. It's good for, it's good for people to, <laughs> to work. Yeah. Um, but my love is learning. My love is research. And I have a lot I want to do and a lot I can do. And I wouldn't mind feeling my way forward towards some kind of base financial support somehow, some way to be able to write books, to be able to organize. I also have experience organizing. It is very important that we organize like you're doing. And this kind of work takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of emotional investment, a lot of intellectual investment. You can lose 60, 70 hours a week without batting an eye being busy doing this kind of work. And I'm happy to invest myself in that effort and these efforts. And so if there's anyone out there who uh, would like to support uh, me in that, um, by all means, find my independent scholarship fund. So That's I'm awesome, going to, yeah. just for listeners, this is gonna be on YouTube, Run, Rumble, Spotify. There's gonna be a link to that in, in the description. So if you wanna go support uh, Nathan, go click that link, that'd be awesome. Um, I guess, sorry, Camille, do you have any further questions? I was going to kind of grab that last one, but if, if you had anything else. Um, it, something will come to mind. I was just going to say, yeah, definitely, definitely uh, throw some, throw some money Nathan's way. Um, if he, he's fighting the right fight, he's on our side, right? Um, anything we, we can do to, him. yeah, to support him is, uh, is very important and he'll pay us back with some, some fascinating research, I'm sure. There is something that I wanted to say with respect to Lee's comment about the availability of the information. And she's 100% right. It's really uh, accessible. And a lot of people are sharing a lot of things around. 
And I, I do a deeper dig. I'm really into intelligence uh, reports and uh, I've, I've found uh, places where I can get intelligence reports. And, but in my uh, statement of withdrawal, uh, I'm punching up. I'm not punching, I'm not, I have no, nothing, no shade at any of my colleagues at the theory center. I, I love these people. And um, I mean, everyone has their responsibility and they're, they are doing their research uh, and they're looking into things with their own ideas in their own ways. Professors are a different story, you know, especially professors who are taking position of the university and the state um, and advocating for students to be injected. I had one professor state point blank. I don't want to teach any students who aren't vaccinated. Well, have you looked into what uh, the side effects are, for example? Have you looked yeah. into what people are saying? Have you looked into anything? Or are you just afraid? Yeah. And so I don't, I, I, I mean, I had the patience with the faculty while I was there, but I could no longer abide what was going on. And so since the faculty weren't going after the administration, it's for the students then to go after the faculty. And so I, I made sure it was clear and it was stated and it was entered into the public record that this was my experience at Western. And you can read that statement of, of withdrawal um, on, on my academia.edu page. It's gotten yeah. a lot of attention. I've over 30 uh, academics from over 30 countries have looked at it. I think it's been viewed like over a thousand times or something, maybe over 2000 in just the last week. Yeah. Well, rightfully so, right? It's, 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 hor it's, it's horrible. I mean, also the lack of accountability and uh, the, the, the neglect, right? They're, these people don't want to accept liability. They want to tell you what to do with something that they don't understand but they don't want any liability and it's not their fault if anything goes wrong. Um, I, yeah. I mean, that's horrible. I, uh, but I, I know everyone here supports and salutes you for, for taking a stand there. It's um, like Western was, was much worse than a lot of the universities too. Like the, a lot of teachers there were not exactly, um, what, what would you say? Accepting. Um, you could say borderline discriminatory, right? They're very um, much discriminatory. Yeah. I even heard that you, they were using it as a bargain chip in uh, negotiations through their union, uh, namely that they wanted mandates in place. Yep. Um, yeah. I inquired yeah. about it. I never got an answer. I, I emailed the acting director of the program and, uh, and um, didn't get an answer. Well, that's yeah. what we're all we're all facing here is is reaching out to these universities and sort of the leadership in these universities. Um, a lot of people in the SAM team have done that. I've contacted the president of my college, Brandon, who's the VP of SAM. He's reached out to the president of his, Cassie. We've all done this, and I've heard from countless students. They're met with either silence or uh, a message just some like copy and paste message basically saying we won't be speaking on this matter anymore. And I just think it's horrific because then you go into class. I had been in so many Zoom meetings where all the professors, the majority of professors were discriminating unvaccinated people and just being ruthless. And, and this is my own experience. I, I can't say this is every single professor at all, but some of the comments that were made were so unprofessional and 
sort of encouraging bullying. And um, it was just very shocking to see from, uh, yeah, academic, um, in the academic institutions and from uh, sort of people who are supposed to be mentors, right? Um, But if you had um, a final sort of message to individuals in your position or students, um, professors who want to speak out, anything like that, what would that message be? What would you want to tell tell people um, in that regard? Well, to the professors, the time has come. Students have uh, taken the mantle and you've, you can, you know, there are plenty of students out there um, standing up. Uh, there need to be more, but, um, you know, uh, we've taken the lead and uh, we're in a more vulnerable, precarious position than the professors are. So it's time for the professors who, um, who, who have the right perspective on this, who've come around to the right perspective on this, to go ahead and, um, and you know, make their tactful or however your, whatever your disposition is, your aggressive uh, statement about, <clears throat> about what's happening. We need that. We need that support very, very badly. Yeah. To the students, um, support. Wade, I think, is his name. Harry Wade. He was arrested at Western. Yeah. And he was disappointed because he thought some students were were seeing things the way he was seeing them and would jump up and 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 uh, and have his back. Well, okay, maybe then wasn't quite the time, but now is the time. If you're one of those students, the time has come, the time is here. And if it's not now, then when? Because if you don't learn to draw a line in the sand and stand up, you will always be bullied. And this is what's happening at our campuses. We are being bullied. And there's nothing worth um, treating yourself without dignity and self-respect. And so we all need to treat ourselves with self-respect. You can see Malcolm X in the background, perhaps, uh, on the wall there. He, uh, he was the great teacher of self-respect and self-determination. Go listen to some Malcolm X speeches from 63, 64, and get some motivation, get out there, and let's kick some ass. <laughs> wow, yeah, awesome. that, that's perfect. Thank you so much, Nathan, for joining us today. I Love the interview, love the discussion, and yeah, perhaps we'll have you back on sometime. Thank you. I loved it too. (laughs) Have a good one. Thank you.